Sam and uh, David have got formidable CVs, and really, I did a bit of work going through this last night, and I must say I got more and more impressed, but it's not my role to, uh, to give you the whole story now. Um, I'm starting with Sam. <laughs> Sam is a theorist. What I found so fascinating is in, in my, uh, you know, educational sort of years, People were one or the other, but yeah, they're everything. They're both critics and they're <laughs> exhibition designers and they're writers and everything all rolled into one. So all the boundaries have been broken down, which I guess the net was responsible for in the first place. So Sam is a theorist. She's a designer. She's a critic. She has her own practice. She's interested in performative practice. She has commercial work as well. At one time, none of these things could be said in the same breath, let alone be actually. It's all fake. Yes. <laughs> well, but have to judge that for yourself. She's been involved in making exhibitions in public art. Um, let me just um, find the next page. Uh, she's founding a director of interior and spatial design at the University of Technology. Even that, interior and spatial design. And she's run design uh, studios in Berlin, Beirut, Prague, and Helsinki. You could hardly get more exotic than that. <laughs> she's exhibited amongst many other venues. She's actually exhibited her own work, so she's an artist as well, at the Biennale of Sydney in 2012 and at the Gwangju Design Biennale in 2011. So I think that's, that's enough, Sam, but there's a lot more. <laughs> David Burns is an architectural designer, an artist, this, you know, astonishes me. An academic, uh, he was educated mainly at Columbia University in New York. He's an American. He's worked at the Guggenheim Museum, but also at the Carnegie Mellon University. Um, he's director of photography at UTS. And uh, he's exhibited as well um, as, as an artist in uh, Abundant Australia at the Venice Biennale. I actually saw that show at the Architecture Biennale, the Venice Architecture Biennale in 2008. And of course, Neil, was that the show that you had so much to deal with, Neil? Yeah, I thought that was a brilliant um, offering, really, from Australia, and I don't think it's been equal since. I hope there's no one in the room. <laughs> um, so what I also found, and I'm finishing now, is that in collective are self-styled agitators. That's another mm. part of the CV which astonishes me a little. Uh, they are questioners rather than answer givers. That worries me a bit. Uh, with multifaceted interests, they're both theoreticians and practitioners. And the French word is Pat knows, where are you, Pat? Is they commissaire d'exposition as well as being well, they're not really curators. Curators, in French, makes a distinction between a curator, where the Latin origin is, we probably all know, comes from cure, to take care of. I've forgotten the Latin word now. Where are you, Robin? It's Greek? Uh, uh, it's Latin. No, I know it's Latin, but you know... Curacitas. Yeah. yeah, well, that's to take care of, to look after. That's a curator, and what curators did, as we know in old-fashioned museums, is they took care of the collection. Mm. That was their job. They didn't have to run about creating new exhibitions. So French, has, in the language itself, has made the distinction between the one who takes care of the collection and the one who creates temporary exhibitions, which is called commissaire d'exposition, and we don't actually have, we call them independent curators, I think. And of course, some people are both. <coughs> anyway, these people are critics, commissaire d'exposition, in other words, they make <laughs> shows, much better. They, they talk about shows, and they are agitators. So on that note, um, oh, they've been described, and is Michael Holt here? Yeah, no, Michael, yeah. uh, I just read one of your articles last night and I'm quoting you and I'm very pleased I thought to acknowledge you because I didn't know you were here or coming. <laughs> um, but I always try and acknowledge. And Michael called them poet, I love this, poetic, prophetic and provocative. The alliteration, poetic, the, this group, 
prophetic and uh, uh, provocative. Uh, that was in Australian Design Review in December 2012. So they're going to lead the conversation. Unfortunately, I promised to do something else this evening and we couldn't find another date. So I'm <laughs> going to have to leave you and I'll get reports from Mo and Sophie and everybody else. So here you, you are Jim. and have a fabulous time. Great. Thank you, Jim. Thank you. Amazing. Couldn't have a better introduction than that. Um, thank you, Jean, as you're walking out. <laughs> Obviously, if it weren't for Jean Sherman, we wouldn't be here today. We would have nothing to talk about at all. So um, enormous thanks to, to Jean. And then, of course, to everyone at SCAFE for uh, putting in such amazing work to get not only this uh, amazing pavilion built, but also to organize these sorts of events. Like, these, these don't have to happen, and we are extremely um, proud to, to be running tonight. Uh, so thank you. Um, some of you, I think, maybe in the audience, were in the audience a couple of months ago when I interviewed uh, Rob and Gabe from ARMA, and we talked about several topics um, that concerned and surrounded the, the pavilion outside. Uh, we talked about things like the history of the folly and the history of the pavilion, um, which is kind of a unique architectural phenomenon of reconstructing the world's great uh, buildings or creating little uh, minuscule kind of references to them uh, in kind of foreign landscapes. And one thing that came up that night was about the, um, the kind of removed experience. So the experience that you have in a space that isn't necessarily authentic, but it somehow still has a currency uh, because of, of the act of experiencing it. Uh, we talked a lot in, in depth about the technology of the pavilion, uh, which of course, as we all know, is um, quite unique, uh, quite novel, quite groundbreaking. Um, so we're going to move on from those topics. We're gonna leave those aside. Uh, we're going to, to expand the conversation um, tonight. So first, I should introduce uh, very quickly uh, who's on stage. My colleague Sam Spur, we are in, uh, and um, I think Jean gave us the best introduction we could possibly <laughs> ever have, so I won't talk anymore about that. But we're also very pleased tonight to have Ertzi Grau. Now, Ertzi uh, is uh, a Spanish architect um, who just recently moved here from uh, New York. Uh, his practice is based in New York, and they're called Fake Industries. Um, and so we're very, very pleased to have Ertzi on the panel tonight. He's also a senior lecturer over at UTS, uh, where I teach as well. So tonight, and I'll just jump right in, uh, tonight the idea was that we were going to talk about architecture and public art. So architecture as public art, or architecture acting as public art. And, and the kind of distinction and the... Um, the boundaries of those, uh, those terms we see as being quite malleable. Um, there are certain things, of course, tonight that we're not going to talk about. We talked about, um, in the first evening, uh, the modernist notion of public art. And I kind of define that as, uh, as the, um, maybe provocatively, if that was the word, uh, kind of the, the decoration, let's say, for modernist architecture. So you have this beautiful moment. This, of course, is uh, Flamingo by Alexander Calder in front of Mises Federal Plaza. The functioning of, of public art then was an object in front of the building. So you have the repetitive, beautiful, I think, um, uh, monotonous modern architecture monument and then in front, then you have things like this. Um, this was a product of the arts and architecture program in the United States uh, from the GSA in which funding is set aside in every federal building uh, to create these things. And, and there's a laundry list of, of, of work that's arisen from that. But we have contemporary versions to speak about as well. These are very timely. This, when we were planning this discussion, this had just been announced. And for us, it was quite exciting because this was not only a very contested and hotly debated thing, all of a sudden in the media, where you had art being discussed in every newspaper and television station, but also, of course, that this is an architect. Uh, this is not a, a, a kind of traditional artist. Um, and then, maybe the flip side of that, you have an artist, someone that we all know, but someone designing something in which he describes it as a building. 
Even the name of the project is called Pavilion. Uh, and these two projects became highly contested. I'm going very quickly through the instruction. Then, of course, we have something like this. Uh, the new um, uh, business school building at UTS, which will open next month. And for us, we see this now as a moment in which the modernist tradition of public art in front of a building has been moved aside. And now we have a building like this that is acting in a lot of ways as public art. People will be experiencing this thing as they may, years ago, this, right? So that's the kind of very brief introduction to that. So I think I will then, um, we, we see this conversation in two parts. We see the project as being uh, the object in the city, which of course is, you could say, this. We also see uh, the project as being beyond the object in the city. So we see these two things. We see the public being defined in a new way, and we see the object and the object less. So I will hand to Sam. And I think this, in the conversations that David and I have been having um, before this event, what we were trying to work out is in the, the wide and the amorphous conversation that we can, can be had around art and architecture, what is particular about the way in which we want to address uh, this issue which is, um, which is of its time. So what David's been doing in terms of saying, you know, there are specific media events that have captured the, the Sydney public imagination and has kind of created this, um, I think, a lot of really useful, robust, controversial uh, scrutiny and debate about the way in which we talk about public art and architecture. And what we realised in the discussions that we've been having is what's central to, to this issue is the idea of, of public and how we talk about the public. Um, what we've been trying to do in N throughout uh, you know, the last four years of our work is thinking about ways in which we can have a more uh, nuanced and complex engagement in what the public is. And I think this is very much based around what we feel is the hijacking of terms such as community, participatory practices, design thinking, which has um, obscured and simplified uh, really important issues about how we share experience and how things, whether they're art or art or art or architecture, have the capacity to resonate within a society, within a place, within a group of people, far beyond the thing itself. Um, and I think uh, what we're going to be trying to do to, doing today in all the work that we talk about is to try and uh, explore this underlying theme. How do we talk about? Art, how we talk, how do we talk about architecture in the sense of who this public is? At that point, I think it, it might be useful to, to introduce fake industries because I think what Utsi is doing in fake industries is a, a kind of a particularly uh, provocative take on the idea of public and the way in which I guess a, a productive conflict can be used in order to create a more uh, uh, intensified, but um, but also also intimate relationship with the public. So over to you. Yeah, uh, yeah. So a um, couple of points. Uh, I love the introductions, and I love that I'm so little things compared to you. <laughs> <laughs> You're like 20 million things. I might guess yeah, one. I'm That's so it. happy about yeah. it <laughs> <laughs> because I was wondering. Anyway. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, I would like to engage with the conversation with a slightly change on the topic, because I think, I'm looking at those images especially, and uh, some of our work, I think uh, to keep referring to a public as something that is separated, that's something that exists beyond our means, and then we produce material that uh, try to engage it or something, that is a, a separate reality, uh, it's, uh, it's kind of a... a, a, a Basically, a conundrum in which you cannot escape because basically you will never be able to access that public, and therefore uh, uh, you will be always kind of in a perpetual, perpetuous failure in a way. You know? Like, <laughs> yes, yeah, it's, there's always someone like, but that doesn't engage the public, mm -hmm. and that's that's. And I, I, when I was looking at these images again, because I've seen them, but I never thought about it, I was thinking about what public these things imagine, because obviously those right. any of these pieces. Yeah. As, uh, and I think that's the way we engage our practice too, are not about a kind of a ideal notion of public that exists there and you try to grasp and you always fail as trying to get to the real or something, but actually it's a matter of proposing an idea of public that is possible or that opens the discussion about what the public is. Mm. No, and th these two pieces are fantastic for that because if you go to the Ishigami one, mm. 
you, you encounter kind of a hyper-classic notion of public in which you relate to a thing that basically is designed by an architect, as it should, because it's big enough to be in a building. Yeah. It's basically an arch. So yes. like arch, traditionally, celebratory arches have been de designed by architects, and we have a history of arches that go from kind of a Victory arches to you know Napoleonic arches to right. San Luis arch you know and this is basically a kind of a thing that is big that encompasses that you can go through it to celebrate something and it has a series of external features that make it amazing you know like wow why this thing holds together and I mean it's kind of unidirectional in the way mm -hmm. it relates to the public and uh, the second one. And I'm sorry for this kind of fast analysis, but I couldn't resist. Because this one, and maybe not this rendering, but the other renderings, when it has uh, people having picnics inside and mm. barbecues. Mm. Uh, <laughs> this just has me sitting there on the bench, <laughs> quietly <laughs> by myself. Yeah. <laughs> In front of, you know, yeah, absolutely. It's a completely, no, it comes from a kind of decontextualized object that shows there, and you get like what it sounds, uh, seems to be a banal uh, scene on a part that suddenly gets completely transformed. Mm -hmm. But it still refers to a notion of public that I think it doesn't apply to what you're talking about, that probably is a public that is imagined in contemporary practice of arts, like relational aesthetics or something like that, mm -hmm. in which is a public that actually is constructed through the, through the events, through the situation, if we're talking situationist terms, or through a relation that is constructed. So the work only appears in the moment that that something happened. Mm. But uh, I think that's also the idea of um, the, the kind of the speculative image of architecture. So of course, you know, we know that, the, that the, the montage rendering has this incredibly powerful effect and the more realistic it is, so we sit there and we go, yeah, okay, right, I, can, I, can, I have a really strong sense of how this is going to sit within Belmont Park. You know, I understand the scale of it. It looks real to me. Um, and I think what's, what you're talking about perhaps is the idea that these these works create new publics, mm -hmm. right? They are, they're, they're not about tick-boxing kind of focus groups and saying, well, the public wants this in terms of, of a big public artwork. It says that these kinds of, particularly when we're talking about the scale of these kinds of public artworks, is that they will transform the spaces around them, that they will create new kinds of engagements, that they will create new kinds of events that are, that are not quite understood as yet. Mm -hmm. um, you know, mm -hmm. we can kind of put bodies in there and, and put the old guys... Put, Put David in there, doing the, <laughs> yeah, the, the, the very large yeah, sketch. Um, but but they're just speculative, mm -hmm. aren't they? The proposals, and but if we see them as potential, not as not as the actual things. Mm -hmm. Then it starts becoming interesting. Yeah, or at least we we have the responsibility to ask these things, and as we're self, uh, yeah. as we're ourselves looking at these things, what is the kind of public you're imagining? Because yeah. I think this one, for example, is much more, maybe because engaging in traditional strategies of the avant-garde or something like, you know, but I think it's much powerful in opening up possible descriptions of the public that the mm. other one, I will say, yeah. that I think is more uh, unidirectional. Mm. You know, this is basically, the other one is a traditional monument, I would claim. It is, yeah, it is, absolutely. But th this becomes, and again, we're not passing judgment on these as good or bad or necessary no, no, no. or not. Mm. But the discussion here, of course, is it's a city organization, a body, who is saying that there is something missing from the city landscape. And I think you can look at this, and the public they imagine is an adoring public that mm. sees this as now a monument. right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. They see this as the St. Louis Arch, mm -hmm. kind of a postmodern St. Mm. Louis era Saarinen, you know, plus... <laughs> Curse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On LSD. <laughs> On LSD. <laughs> so this this object, this thing in the city, this this place that's now been created, uh, does assume that a public will respond. Mm -hmm. And in even in the rendering now, we see just hordes of people, and it's not something they're repelled or repulsed by, but mm -hmm. they're actually attracted to it. So I think that's one thing that, that we could maybe tease out is the, the of course, the, the speculative that you're mentioning, mm -hmm. but also the intention behind a, in this case, a governing body to create or to augment the city with something they see as missing, right? Yeah. And so these, these things in the past would be events. Maybe they would be um, civic architecture, mm -hmm. or maybe they would be... Uh, I don't know, I'm just thinking off the top of my it's head. It's the carnival. Exactly, the, right, yeah. yeah. But instead now, what we're getting and what we've been asked to imagine is something that is inherently functionless and this can't house 
a barbecue, <laughs> right? It, it, can't, it, it can't house anything, in fact. Um, however, it's at the scale of the building. Mm-hmm. It's the scale of a very, very large building, a 50, you know, 50 meter building. So what does that mean? What, how, does that, how does then that sort of uh, adaptation of architecture, what does that mean in terms of the way that, that a city is imagining mm-hmm. built environment? Well, we need to put this in context with the, like, contraposite to the Gary building then. Yes, Because true. that will be the, the other, and I, and I love your, like, contraposition of something <laughs> like that with, uh, with the Federal Plaza. You know, like the kind of the fact that the, there's a seamless mix between the piece of architecture, it's a stop, it's stop being the backdrop for a piece of art, you know, like a silent curtain that allows us to read the colorful, but it right. becomes both things. Uh, but I think something that you mentioned is key, that is, this is not coming from the city. No. no. This is a kind Absolutely of... Absolutely not. It's the city, when it decides to transform the city, what is missing and the role the architect gets mm. is an arch, right? a celebratory arch. And this comes from a different kind of institution that even if I imagine has a kind of serious concern about the transformation of the city, doesn't have a governing body that decides over the city as a whole, but actually decides that, well, it's probably we should have a nice building that actually becomes some kind of artistic quality attached to the city. And I think that's kind of key because we move from the kind of what kind of, we move to through imaginations. No one, that's what, what kind of public is being imagined through certain specific works, but also what kind of a role of architecture is being imagined by commissioning things like this. Right. No? It's completely different. I mean, like, when, um, when the city assumes that architects should be doing the celebratory monuments through a pedestrianization of uh, George Street, no? But yeah. that's the case. Right. And that's the kind of effort, and probably that arch has a similar price to a huge building, and that's, that's yeah. the end result, is starting to be a little bit strange, mm. because we seems to be back in uh, times that were not so nice. No, it's kind of a celebration of, like, I'm thinking about the, the Roman arches, that's right. the kind of thing, like we change this and then we make a signifier mm-hmm. here that is only celebrates the transformation without actually adding any other thing. That's really interesting because, of course, the St. Louis Arch was meant to be an invitation to the West. It's called the Gateway to the West. Mm -hmm. And the idea was St. Louis was the edge of civilization. And this arch, this big, arisen, and beautiful arch was kind of like, no, you can, you can keep going. <laughs> like, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the door. And of course, then that's, that's dictated all the, the um, regulations in St. Louis. You can't build taller mm-hmm. than the arch, right? That's and the scary. planes fly through it. And, you know... So, okay, that's a really good point. So I'm wondering now, then, can we shift and talk about what the private, what, what not, and UCS, of course, isn't private, however, but it's independent from the city. Yeah. Mm. The, government, the government cannot, and, or I assume, did not mandate what can be built and when and how and by whom. And now we have a situation where this building, love it or hate it, has become this unbelievable focal point of debate as though it was this, mm-hmm. mm. when in fact it's just to educate, right? There's a building that yeah. it will just house business students of all, <laughs> of all the disciplines. <laughs> That's the new business school. Mm. <laughs> so then we have an institution like UTS who is, they're working on a public image. They're working on, on a, a face forward, a moment in which they're establishing themselves as whatever. Right, my employer. <laughs> Thank okay, you. Um, <laughs> um, so, what does that mean then? If there, you know, there would never, no one would ever pick at the streets or write nasty editorials if um, uh, a generic firm was chosen to build another horrible building on UTS's campus. Mm-hmm. But now, this building has caused all sorts of anger because it dares not be. You know, the, the typical UTS building, which is <laughs> generic. Yeah. All right, so what does that mean? What does that mean? Is the public there imagining something beyond what they are? Or is it, uh, you know, and I've written in these notes, and this is a hilariously ridiculous statement, but is UTS now uh, an art philanthropist? <laughs> are they commissioning public art? 
Is UTS, did UTS just commission the largest piece of public art that Sydney has ever seen? Stop. <laughs> <laughs> and the conversation stopped. Yeah, I, look, I, I think that it, it, this is where we sort of start moving to really problematic territory, yes. isn't it? Because, um, of course, the, uh, you know, the kind of the vast differences between understanding a, a piece of architecture as a public, as a, as a piece of public art that mm. can be um, experienced and understood within the kind of, as a purely in a kind of, yeah. in terms of effect, yes. is, um, is to simplify is to simplify it in intensity. And I think perhaps maybe before we go into that conversation, we could find a middle ground, which is the, the program of the pavilion, you know, because the pavilion sits between the two. So, you know, we can talk about, we can look outside and hopefully we'll you know, enjoy a really nice drink soon and, and spend some time in, in trifolium. Um, and I think, you know, you mentioned before this idea that, um, you know, the idea of uselessness. So, yeah. you know, the minute we strip away function from a piece of architecture, mm. then suddenly this exacerbates uh, the experiential. So suddenly we start, we can start reading it purely in terms of its material effects, right? Which architects hate to do. Exactly. And they, so, they aren't able to do. Right? Yeah. I mean, that's not going to happen. <laughs> that's not going to happen in a conversation yeah. with a client. No client's ever going to ask them, well, just give me, I don't care about what's happening inside the building, just tell me what the experience is. That's not going to happen, right? No. Mm. <laughs> I say no. Okay, let's go. Let's go. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, but I think more to the point, then how do we begin to start reading the Pavilion Project? So the Pavilion Project has become, you know, of course a huge thing. It's all over the newspaper. It's soon going to be launched in, in Melbourne. So the M Pavilion is opening, I think, in about a month with the Sean Godsall Pavilion. Um, so what is, and, you know, th there's been an ongoing conversation about what is the worth of these kinds of pavilion projects. Obviously the Serpentine is the most famous of this in, in London. Um, PS1 might be. Or, or, and PS1, which of course we're, we're going to be talking about a little later on. Um, but what is, how do we begin to read these projects in terms of their, their artistic content, in terms of their architectural content, and, and I think maybe, maybe it would be a useful thing to start talking about the way in which um, fake industries, I'm going to be particular about and force you to start <laughs> talking about your work here, has understood that idea about what a, what a pavilion is and how you reinterpreted so that brief. So a little background, Ertzi's practice fake industries, artificial agonism, was a finalist, one of five, for the next um, PS1 Young Architects program. Pavilion. And if you don't know this, this project, it is very similar to the mandate of this. Uh, it, it's situated in Queens at PS1, uh, which is owned by MoMA, Museum of Modern Art. And for the last 15 years, they've run this, pro, uh, this competition for young architects uh, to build um, a pavilion in their, their courtyard, and it houses sorts of public events, parties, and, and uh, drinking, and music, and whatnot. But it's become a pivotal competition, not just the winner, but more often um, the, the catalog. Barry Bergdahl, the curator of this, uh, was here earlier today, and he described the finalists over the last 15 years as being a repository of contemporary architecture, unbuilt contemporary architecture. So we're quite lucky. Uh, Ertzi was one of the finalists this year, and we're going to force him now, against his will, <laughs> talk about how he uh, approached this idea of a uh, semi-functionless yeah. commission. I, that's great, because I kind of disagree with everything you say. So Good. Uh, uh, I don't think folies are, are functionless, Unless we look at function in a really kind of uh, kind of uh, reduced notion of functionalism to mm -hmm. the early 20th century, they have really specific function through the history of architecture. Yes. In the last, can we say use? Uh, use? Yeah, I think use is is is, uh, is, is a better word. They're useless, but they're functional. useless, but really functional. I mean, they operate <laughs> nice. in a really really specific way. And I think the conversation we had uh, three months ago or uh, two months ago, when you have it here with with Rob, literally took take on that issue, that yes. have, they play really, really specific functions, both 
within the culture of architecture, but mm -hmm. also, I mean, there were key elements to actually construct the, the British garden, and they will have, you know, a key role in understanding mm -hmm. romantic notions of, of landscape and how you relate to history, and, you know, the functions were specific, maybe not related with functions and, you know, optimized organization of living, but actually functions that have a more a kind of sophisticated way to engage with, and uh, that I think I, we are already engaging with some of those, but actually our pavilion... Uh, can I go? Uh, yeah, can you put the first image? That, that's the queue of hipsters waiting to enter. <laughs> uh, in the front, this is the outside wall that surrounds the courier. It's a courier that is like maybe 10 times or 20 times this one. It's a big courier of former public school. And uh, it's famous uh, for these 15 years of pavilions that I have to say, and it's pretty because Rob left. No, he's here. He's, he's in the back. Are you going to the back? He's not uh, away. So there's a, it's a place that has tradition to actually, uh, actually in a really modernist uh, logic, uh, using the, the pavilion uh, as this place in which you test technologies that are so new that you use it to produce something that is almost impossible. Like you really right. construct a fiction through the technology that actually eventually will uh, kind of become, uh, you know, um, popular or banal. Right. But you know, you can go, you know, to the to the uh, Russian pavilion in, in Paris with, you know, like pavilions that will kind of do more than they are allowed to do precisely mm -hmm. because there are pavilions. There are pavilions and therefore they last for not enough time, but then therefore if they decay really fast, it won't be a problem. I mean, the Mies Pavilion in Barcelona is one of the famous cases, a building that couldn't last for more than eight months because literally was falling apart. But, you know, it's a place in which <laughs> architecture is allowed to do things that, you know, since buildings are supposed to last for 100 years, you're not supposed to do. And then in a pavilion, you're allowed to test things that could fail because you have a, you know, eight months or even less period in which it, it works. And then that connected to the kind of optim, kind of positivistic uh, kind of arrow or uh, evolution of technology and, 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 and rationalism connected to this series of pavilions in which technology as something that you had to explain and uh, exploit and actually uh, also become deducted to a public that will be interested in the transformation of the world towards a better future mm. uh, will be about that. And it's not difficult to actually go through a history of pavilions since the 1920s that engage in that kind of tradition. Uh, we start with a slightly different uh, kind of approach, slightly, because we were really interested in technologies, but technologies understood as something slightly different. That is, uh, we start with a simple question. This thing has a function, and it's a really specific one, and is it has to host events, usually related with the massive parties that happen every Saturday when people get really drunk mm -hmm. and all the hipsters of Brooklyn show up queen outside to get in. Uh, let's be clear though, you have, you have defined that function. No, 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 that's the brief. That's that the is the brief. This is, is a pavilion okay. that has to host drunk these hipsters. Drunk, drunk hipsters. hipsters. I mean, that's, good, that's, good, uh, let's say okay. that it's a take on the brief. That's uh, a clean brief. Yeah, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. but you know, but it's basically a, is the, is the music summer program of MoMA in mm. which certain uh, experimental music is played and happens together with something that's called the summer sessions, and it happens every Saturday. Yeah, and it lasts. It starts at noon and finishes at six. So it's a daylight party. And uh, we start with a really simple question: that is, did architecture everything any ever had anything to do with parties? It's any really. It's <laughs> any way to claim if we have in this room a great party, mm. the architecture of the room has anything to do with it. And we start with this beautiful picture of the CBGBs after a great concert by, I think it was Blondie, and it was like a famous one, and it's empty, and it looks shit, and you look, and there's no way in which, as an architect, you will claim you know, something Right. Like, oh, this because the space, or because the materiality of the walls, or because <laughs> the technology embedded on it, or actually make this party great. And then we kind of try to, okay, so we have to work from here, because this is what it's going to be. Um, so we try to figure out what are the technologies that are absolutely architectural technologies that build the party. And... We discovered, first of all, that they are really, they're quite invisible in a way. They tend to be uh, two things, technologies that have to do with 
uh, atmospheric conditions. So they're like everywhere, but we don't see it. They're like this little place when you get some AC, probably the lights, the sound system, but I mean, part is all about that. But also uh, technologies that have to do with framing and, and bailing people and you know being allowed in a party is really important to get some privacy, to escape to a corner, to do things that you're not supposed to be doing in public and you think about clubs and things like that. And we say, okay, let's take these two technologies and try to organize a party in which architecture basically will be more or less invisible and you will never get uh, acceleration of the technology, but the technology will be enabling conditions that have to do with the individual uh, activities. Yeah. Uh, so we can flip through the images, and you will never see the pavilion because the pavilion is basically that background. The movie, you know, yeah. the, and sometimes looks like that, sometimes looks like that. Because basically, what we do, we did was to build a series of rooms with uh, drywall uh, and add a series of elements that will transform the atmosphere or the kind of the possibilities of the party there. This is the catalog of all the rooms. There are. Uh, uh, re disorganized, so you will never actually, you are not, you never see the complete shape of the entire thing. You, as a user or as a party goer or whatever you want to call it, will cross from one to each other, but also you will have um, uh, diagonal uh, visions in which you will see some other rooms with other things happening, or will, you will be able to escape to a different room in which you'll be hi hiding. Uh, there will all these the, uh, uh, technologies that will dislocate the party in a way, there will be speakers place far away from the, from the DJ, so we'll have a second party going on another room. It operates, it's something that I mean is quite banal, that it's basically a apartment party in which you, you, know, you go to a room, then you go to another room, then you go to another room, and at the end, the technology that we were using was the most simple one, that was rooms and doors and windows. I think uh, you can flip the throne, this is the party with a pool, uh, kind of a party that was a, um, uh, spring break party. Uh, mm. Those are some of the rooms when they are empty, and uh, some of the technologies. As you see, the technologies are not necessarily about something really complex or celebratory. Sometimes are just basically a device that produces shadow or something that actually help you to, you know, eat something because the party is getting too long and you're tired, or simply you get a kind of a strange feeling when you walk in a in a floor full of, of different kind of. Of, of ground, but it was kind, kind of uh, something like that that probably connected with uh, notions of uh, uh, relation, relational aesthetics in a way, that is a, a kind of an idea of saying, okay, the, and that's what I was trying to get uh, looking at the two first examples, that it seems that architecture when it's brought to the field of art and operate at public art, tend to be radically conservative, mm. tend to kind of support notions of public art that are quite old, like they're like solidified, mm. maybe because it's, you, architects, we feel like foreigners when we are operating <laughs> in the realm of art, so therefore we go to look for the things that we know, they're solid and they're recognizable and everyone's like, oh, it's a column, yes, it's a monument, don't worry. Uh, when, you know, when you look at you know, experiments in the realm of art in the public space, are far more sophisticated than, than you know, having to say, this is the object, don't worry, it's there, you recognize it, mm. you feel, you know, oh, this is art. Uh, yeah, those are, oh, look, we have a plan, actually. There's two really strange axonometrics uh, in but which this you is the, the rooms. That's the, is that the entrance? <laughs> That's the entrance. Yeah, so this is, there's a, for those of you who have not been there, it's an enormous old public school in New York City in the Queens neighborhood. And it's, they've built this uh, tall co uh, concrete wall around the courtyard. So it's quite beautiful. I don't know when the concrete wall was built, but it's new. Mm -hmm. um, and so you enter off the street here, a very kind of uh, normal, uh, uh, kind of working class New York City. Well, it's not so working class not anymore. anymore. <laughs> um, so then the entrance to the museum is actually on this end. And there are enormous stairs going up to this red brick mm -hmm. public school. And so this courtyard is very large. Okay, just, <laughs> you know, background. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, so you can see there what, what these actually, these images were never produced, they never submitted to MoMA, and maybe that's why uh, we never, they didn't get it or something. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because we keep them on the dark, we only, we'll keep showing these that. images. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, images like rooms with people, sometimes full of people having a party, sometimes, uh, you know, uh, 
David Lynch character walking around a, a, a room that has a curtain around it and will have a kind of a strange experience that is not. Can, we show, can we show your hand? Yeah, I think the video though is the one that actually gets you the kind of the. I don't, we don't have audio. That that's okay, yeah. Better because if not, we won't be able to talk. I think we should talk. Yeah, you have the, all the rooms uh, <laughs> with the party going on. As you can see the video. Of course, if we understand this thing as a piece of uh, public, public art, this video uh, imagines a really specific audience. I mean, and that's, I think that I want to go to back to that. Because Let's watch it, again. it refuses to use means of representation that will be uh, flat, that will say this is what it is. I mean, this is... Basically, you mean, do, what do, can you talk about? You mean in terms of the video and the chickens? Or? Of course, I mean, yeah. Yeah. This, this is a video that imagines both the audience of the party and the audience that is judging the video to understand mm. that this is not about a flat rendering in which you say, oh, yeah, this is a party, there's a lot of bodies, and they're all happy, and they flock around, well, they flock, but they flock around. <laughs> <laughs> they flock around. The music is actually an understanding that, of course, a party is a really dubious uh, kind of form of public celebration, mm. a private organized uh, by a private uh, company like MoMA, mm. uh, and making specific claims about what constructing the public is, and knowing a little bit about, you know, who are the hipsters in Brooklyn that goes to the thing. So uh, I think with that point is that, uh, what I try to say is that what a piece of public art imagines is not necessarily a fantastic positivist uh, relationship with a perfect society or something of happy people, but actually right. could become, an, and that goes back to the agonistic uh, approach that we try to take, but actually it tries to, uh, these documents try to start a conversation about what, public, what this public is, mm. literally with a client, with the MoMA. So we brought this thing there, we played this thing, uh, in front of uh, an audience of juries that include the, the director of MoMA, the head of architecture, that were completely kind of tonish. <laughs> Why are you doing this thing to us? And, uh, and the idea was literally that, that if you're proposing public art, you are proposing a discussion to everybody involved. Right. And that, that is important. I mean, that's, I think it's so important because... If not, public art becomes naturalized in a way. You know, it's art, it's there, that's okay. Like, I think, I, and I love Ishigami, I have to say. It's one of my, you know, the, the artists, the architect, sorry, that I really admire. But I'm really upset about this arch because that arch is a problem. It's like literally allowing to assume that, oh, don't worry, that's art. Everybody's safe, and it's in a big square, and everybody sees it, and, you know, it's an arch, and it has every single element that allows you to be safe and right. stay and look at it. And I think the responsibility is any, any form of uh, kind of proposal for public art requires to discuss what this public that conforms the city, that conforms this public space, because at the end, the, the definition of public art means art that's in the public realm. No, that's at the end, like the most basic, that requires the responsibility to discuss what conforms the public realm, and public realm is usually con constructed through kind of controversies and discussions that right. happen in there. So therefore, it has to become a tool to actually both discuss and in the making be a, discuss, a thing that they help you to discuss. Yeah. So that, uh, I think, was... Uh, Is part of the problem the object? Okay, so, so uh, what happens if we take the object out of the art? Okay, so I'm thinking, you know, you talk a lot about the way in which this fabulous p pavilion, PS1, can be understood through um, atmos atmospheres. So I think, you know, you used the idea of kind of Calibrating atmospheric conditions, which define uh, or you know shape the different spaces, and uh, you know I, I think in probably in direct response against the modernist tradition of the kind of the dramatic form of, of public art that sits in front of the building, I think what we're also starting to see now is public art which actually is invi invisible, mm -hmm. right? So you know, and I think a really good example of this is the Janet Cardiff work called the City of Forking Paths, which um, the City of Sydney bought as 
uh, one of the Biennale legacy projects at the beginning of this year. So I don't know how many people have actually seen this work, but um, if you haven't, Janet Cardiff has built a reputation uh, with her partner, George um, Miller, uh, using these idea of audio walks. So, you know, you, you kind of plug yourself in, and it's great, because I, I did one um, recently at Louisiana in Denmark, and it's sort of an old-school thing. You know, you're kind of thinking, what, it's just an audio work? So, you know, you plug in, and she takes you on this walk through the grounds of Louisiana, and you get this incredibly uh, uh, kind of convoluted set of sensations between what you're hearing, the sounds that you're hearing, the narrative that she's constructing in a very intimate way to you personally, and the experience of you actually moving through the gardens. And this is amplified in the City of Sydney project in the recent work that she's doing where she's actually uh, adding the use of the smartphone screen. So not only are you hearing a narrative that is not actu not actualised in front of you, but you're also visualising the narrative through this screen. And she uses this kind of great uh, description of, of physical theatre. So, you know, you are actually participating in a kind of in a cinematic understanding of or a cinematic representation of art. And I think what's really interesting there is that what you're what we're dealing with now is is pure experience. We're dealing with pure atmosphere. And so that kind of works almost against the the obvious relationship in which we can talk about public art and architecture, which is through the Caldor project. You know, we get it, we can talk about scale, we can talk about um, uh, kind of the experience of that kind of uh, that that mammoth kind of project, but now we're talking about the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. What do you what do you think about this? No, yeah, I think that's that's really interesting because then one, it's it's engaging with the city on a very one to one relationship. So mm -hmm. you know, um, the her piece, of course, at Documenta was it was based in history. Right? Mm -hmm. It was not revealing mm -hmm. a speculative future or a fiction. It was actually retelling of a story that's quite. Um, painful, mm -hmm. right? So then the, the kind of the train station as a as a as a moment of departure during the Second World War mm -hmm. becomes now uh, revealed. So I think that's that that um, that idea of the objectless is is interesting for architects to talk about, of course, because that's that's contrary to the typical understanding of, of what it is we do. But I think it also fits quite well into what you guys were proposing for PS1 because we don't, we're not focused on, and frankly, PS1 has for 15 years built very spectacular, meaning very like um, visual things. Um, I'm wondering how do they respond to this idea of like a almost a generic or a familiar architecture that was meant to instead be more based on atmosphere or based in kind of. Mm -hmm. Idea. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I won't claim that we don't use objects. I think. No, of course but you do. That's, that's uh, probably from all the proposals that were presented that day, we were the proposal that proposed. Sorry for the pun. <laughs> um, larger amount of architecture being built. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, everybody kind of concentrate like you know, makes the object con like compact mm -hmm. somewhere so you can. Have a relationship, what to what? I guess I guess I meant that your project didn't look like an object. It yeah, that's like, that's yeah. That's so no, so that's a, the point I want to I want to get. Like, I I think that it's a confusion between making an object didactic, so it speaks it speaks as an object, it's recognizable as an object, produce a tension between an object that you can literally almost take and you know you comprehend immediately, mm. and a, and a notion of. I won't like the word experience. I always get a little bit nervous mm -hmm. about it. But, uh, you know... Uh, what would they, you they, rather use? What would you rather use? Interior. I like interior. Okay. The word interior. It's, a, it's a basically a piece of architecture that you are always inside. So you yeah. are never... You are right. not allowed to be have a relationship in which you can be outside and say, okay, right. it's there, I get it. It's a, and, I, and I think... It's called rooms, literally, because you are always inside of a room. Right. You're never so outside. So you're always immersed within the, yeah, immersed the event. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or you're, you never, there's no outside. Mm. There's like literally no outside to this thing because the, the courtyard already has a, room, a wall, so it exists, you know, there's a fence yeah. or whatever. But you're never allowed to say, well, look, it's there, it's fantastic. I can have a passive relationship with this thing in which I recognize mm. it and I decide, um, I kind of judge. You're always inside. 
that is mm. kind of a complicated condition because you're always also outside because you don't have roof. But uh, <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, but that helps to describe the problem of atmosphere and also move away from descriptions of atmospheres that are mm. tend to touching phenomenological uh, yes. uh, accounts, yeah, you know, in yeah. which and tend to be drawn as a kind of a blurry thing. You know, like right. atmosphere is basically drawing air, and that means that you have to have mist somewhere, like, <laughs> oh, come on, you had, things are blurry. you had some mist in there, come on, yeah, there's got to be some mist. Where is this? I think we forgot. There's snow. There's sweat. There's snow and sweat, but not mist. <laughs> uh, no, but the, I think the, the decision of make all these images crystal clear, in a way, yeah. in, a, in a project that talked all the time about atmospheric technologies, was a really explicit decision in which you say like, well, atmospheres are about probably the temperature in the room, yeah. the smell, and the quality of sound, and uh, you don't see that. Mm. But it's also about having these awkward elements uh, that actually generate a really strange mm. relationship to the place. Um, but I think this is also, it's, a, it's about an approach, isn't it? So it's not simply to say what you're doing is, is, is not, you're not actually creating objects in space. Mm -hmm. It's about a, a kind of approach which is focused on the, on the atmospheric. And I, I, I agree, I think there's, there's problems in terms of talking about it from a subjective phenomenological kind of point of view, but I think the strength of atmospheres is that they, they talk about the intangible. Not, which is not necessarily specific to a particular person in that intangible mm -hmm. space. And I, and I think an example of this, which I think is useful, is that you know, in the conversations that we've been having with, um, with Arma and with Rob particularly, in terms of the trifolium outside, has been very much based around the ideas of the atmospheric. And I think that's particularly interesting because it's, it's far too easy to talk about this pavilion in terms of the narrative of its making, right? So it's far too easy to talk about it in terms of um, uh, digital fabrication, the 3,000 unique components, you know, the robots. You know, like, you know, this is a kind of, this is a very kind of easy, tantalizing conversation, which is very seductive. Um, but what we've always been having this conversation about, and which, you know, when Rob, and Rob did this today when he was put on the spot, um, to say, you know, what's the pavilion about, um, is actually talking about material effects. So wh what are the ways in which it creates a, a continuous surface, a continuous space? How do we create a space, particularly on the kind of small scale, that feels like it's endlessly repeating or, 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 or unfolding in a kind of an incredibly immersive and experiential way? Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's, a, it's about approach. It's not, about, it's not it's simply about taking out the object per se or taking out the architecture. Mm -hmm. No, you see, they're full of things. Exactly. Is, is there like right. there's all talk? You are an architect. <laughs> <laughs> I like that, yeah. We can be okay. <laughs> so perhaps we'll wrap up this one. We have two planned. This is the first of, well, this is the second of three, actually. Uh, we have one more plan, and I'm really glad that the conversation now has kind of moved, maybe subconsciously, um, towards what Sam and I are hoping maybe to talk about in the next thing. And so if I can skip past all the slides we didn't show. Oh, look, public art, public art, public art, public art. Oh. So what perhaps we want to leave with today is a discussion about uh, the architecture of the inside. So not necessarily the interior, like something that's designed uh, to necessarily be only um, opposite of the outside. It's not just the binary of the outside, mm -hmm. but it's a discussion about something that's perhaps inherently architectural, which is the inside. So Rob talked at length uh, to us uh, before and in, in, in when you were interviewing him for the, your article that you're writing um, about how trifolium started from the inside out. So unlike an object in which we understand it as a uh, circumnavigatable thing, uh, maybe like the way we would talk about sculpture. Instead, he imagined this thing as coming from the inside out, and he often says, we, you know, we'll, we'll decide if we believe him or not, that the exterior was just a consequence of the interior. Mm -hmm. So if that's true, and I think in a lot of ways that then relates to what Gertzi was speaking about, we do have the situation now where the inside is something that perhaps um, relates to architecture, but in this instance, in this context, is also a condition of art. 
Okay. So um, we have a couple of minutes. If mm. there is any burning questions that need to happen here and not outside where there is a beautiful pavilion and alcohol, <laughs> I'm happy to open the floor for a second or 10 or a minute, two. Yes. Um, just an observation. The, the chicken um, on the <laughs> before and then the, 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 the last image you showed of the, of the green walls within the forecourt, I, I, it's very difficult to understand how they relate because the original plan that you showed showed a series of boxes with corridors. But then the proposal that you put up was uh-huh. like a series of hanging walls. And can, can you, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, so yeah, yeah. Just, can you explain which, which scheme is? That, that image that you're referring with corridors. Wait, um, uh, the one that has all the rooms. This, this one. one. Yeah. Those are not corridors. This is the catalog of rooms. So these are each room Taxonomy of the rooms. Yeah. It's a taxonomy of rooms. So uh, each room will be connected to another room through one of the doors. There's no space between them. They're like basically explained as individual entities that have its own atmosphere. That's where they are. Uh, each of them had a name that is not in this image because. This is not a space, or I don't know, not a not definition. Each of them had a name and had its own atmosphere, but always a room. They're basically a, a series of rooms on filad. You always get from one room to another room. You never, there's no actual functional distinction between circulation and room. That was one of the kind of, that's why when you look at the others and the kind of weird axonometrics, you get yes room. You don't see the you don't see the walls going in the direction yeah, so of the axonometric. Yeah, right. So there are like, walls here. They're just yeah. in you the axon. Because it's weird looking like that. There's basically, <coughs> I think there were forty something uh, square rooms and a series of triangular rooms. Tina, well, this question. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's, it's a really straightforward question for you, Elsie. Um, expert presenting your project. I was just wondering if you see it as public art. Yeah, that's a, it's so funny because I always wonder like that. I think in the context of this conversa- conversation, it makes a really good example. Uh, it's a, obviously is a piece of art that is that constructs and imagines a and imagines a public. But of course, it's as public art as this pavilion here. Uh, I mean, it's a question that yeah, or, or any of the kind of uh, pavilions that have been popping up everywhere. With the exception, maybe of the of the serpentine that happens mm-hmm. in a park, uh, all these pavilions happen in control spaces, and therefore it's difficult to claim that you know to get into the party you have to pay, but to get the rest of the week is is open. The courier is open to the not anymore actually, and they close that. They have the shop in the front now, so it's it's complicated to kind of claim. But let's say. Because there is a huge amount of public that actually engages in this thing, you can eventually claim that it's a, to a certain degree public. But uh, I have to say that when we were, I mean, I, I never discussed it, this as a piece of public art. Yeah, because okay. for me, I, I think it's a really interesting project to discuss here because it's, uh, the rooms are both unprogrammed and ultra-programmed. Right. Because if you're mm. thinking about the context of the party, that is the perfect design, right? To have the opportunity. So you finally found this this program or this activity for which the unprogrammed becomes the ideal program. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so, like so, so I think Peter, did you have a question? I really enjoyed this all the speakers and the publications. Uh, Burning to talk with a footsie for hours. Between midnight and 6 a.m. In one of these boxes. And we'll, uh, let's let's my, put you there. My question is um, while you talk, I'm really thinking about Aaron Betsky's book, Queer Space, where yeah. he does this like connects the whole of Europe's the best signs to do it before, which I love as an idea, but it's actually very problematic historically because, of course, here from 300 years ago, I can't be the same as somebody got grass and nine babies. And, I just want to ask you, is the kind of proposition, so of course Betsky is also um, doing that to people properly, are those kind of provocations uh, interesting for you? Yeah. People like Betsky, mate. I don't necessarily like Bersky, but uh, I when well, I, I kind of uh, give you a really brief account of this thing. 
And uh, when after the analysis of a series of space of parties in, in Manhattan or in, in New York that include Studio 54, and try to understand all the way from the kind of uh, the speakeasies, what were the specificities, specificities of the architecture that actually had a role in the transformation of the, of the production of the space. So the speakeasies will be you know, all sorts of devices to control the gaze, to have securities, to be uh, separated from the outside. But when we go to the, you know, the rooms in the village in which the folk was developed, you know, there's a need of a specific amount of smoke in the room to actually get to a level. Or we were looking at the kind of the spaces in the meatpacking district yeah. and the lack of ventilation that will give you an atmosphere of, of sweat, literally, that will allow for certain uh, kind of uh, forms of sexuality to, to develop. We look at the at the Mad Club and, uh, and Studio 55 and all these things, we decided, okay, we identified that there's the two things, the atmosphere, but also scopic technologies, technologies that reorganize the vision that allows you to kind of hide, uh, kind of decontextualize certain parts of, certain parts of your body, mm -hmm. frame, reframe points of view. And then we did two exercises that I don't have the drawings here. First one, to discuss the problem of atmosphere, we uh, map out technologies that are used in the raves in Berlin, assuming that Berlin raves are probably the most, the longest ones and require all sorts of technologies to, you know, to have the party going for, for five or six year, days. And then, and then, you know, like people get bored. So you have all these devices that transform the, so there were places that we you know they will open the windows for two seconds and they will cover. Mm. But I think the most uh, interesting, I think going back to Peter's question is that with a f group of friends uh, that be, have been working on that for a while, we look at the spaces we thought scopic technologies were more intense, that were the back rooms on, of gay clubs in Barcelona. And we kind of uh, uh, redraw, basically, this, this mm. is a group of friends that have been working on that, basically drawing all these rooms again, and drawing for the very first time, because they've never been drawn, because we assume that actually walls there are probably uh, one of the places in which a decision on the wall, like literally a hole, a window, a right. place in which you touch with your hand, uh, changes have a bigger effect. And they're like effects that are, you know, this, it's all about function, let's mm. say. Function in the, in the way we were talking before. Mm. So uh, we were looking at those arguments. We didn't go to all the way to, to Versailles, though. We stay in the kind of 20th century uh, for... You know, basically, because we did this thing in a month. I mean, it's a limit <laughs> how far you can go. But of course, that was the question: like, is there technology, uh, te architectural technologies, engaging in what the festivity is? And we also stopped there because, I mean, architecture and festivities have been so closely connected. Yeah. You know, like there's a huge history of the festivity of the architect, you know, mm -hmm. designing things that are, and that will become impossible also once to link it to kind of more contemporary transformation. Yeah. But, uh, but absolutely, I, we, we were looking at those, those traditions. One more. Right. Yeah. Any? Yep. I noticed in the slides you skimmed over that you didn't get a chance to talk about, you had a few of Australian Square. Mm -hmm. So I'm just curious to know how you bring that in. Well, we, we, uh, we, we had a bank of images, and there's the Cardiff, actually. Uh, we had a bank of images that we wanted to talk about, about the transition and trying to find out what the moment was in which the kind of modernist axiom of, of public art and architecture shifted. And so showing some examples, of course, the original um, Corbusier uh, tapestries in Australia Square and, the, and then the contemporary Saul Lewitz, of course, Picasso in Chicago, Calder Chicago, Calder here, and then the moment in which kind of public art and architecture really collapsed into one thing, into a very confrontational moment, which of course is Sarah's Tilted Art, in which the moment in which the, the, the piece of sculpture was destroyed in the name of, of the city, hmm. in which the city rebelled against public art uh, and reverted back to kind of functional modern, modernism. So that's just, we just had them queued up. <laughs> you don't know what's going to be talked about. Yes. Bringing, um, the ghost of Foucault has definitely been in the room a lot. Mm. Before, right? Yeah. You we talk keep about scopic technology and also asking um, uh, scopic technology, technologies of the visible, um, and all the power relations that are implied by um, technologies of visibility and invisibility, and how they translate into architecture. Mm. Of course, 
that question is the question that you brought up at the beginning, Sam, about who is the public, who is on view, and who is viewing. Um, so in the structures that you that you've shown, I was just thinking about what types of belonging and what types of agency that the that the projects um, create, and how visibility and invisibility works in the question of belonging and agency. Mm. Sorry, it's a bit much at the end of the. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so we can just turn it here. That might be a good one for the group. <laughs> you have a short answer. And on that note. <laughs> Great question. I think we've been answering this que the question. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what I think it's. I mean, it's, it's, it's yeah, yeah. Uh, like you know, like I think the the question of what uh, the to make a kind of a, kind of a, a little bit of pedestrian uh, answer to that. Uh, I think requires a lot of development to answer to that thing properly. Uh, uh, the way to address all these questions, you know, any of these pieces, not only mine but all the other ones is for me asking, having the responsibility of asking the, the mm -hmm. piece, what is the public that you're imagining? And looking at the, instead of, I, I was trying to break out from the kind of the, the traditional discussion and we have the weekend a lot uh, in, in Adelaide, you know, like the public is this thing that exists there. And, it's a, and you know, like there is a ser series of uh, power relationships that are in inscribed in any of these pieces. Mm -hmm. In any of them, and they so and and then and so I don't know if you're asking me to kind of clarify the ones that are inscribing my piece or. The is that things aren't always what they seem. So some of the structures that seem the most um, to be the most propositional, in fact, aren't. Um, and I'm interested about how that um, kind of reversal and that type of control works, and it mm. perhaps works in relation to kind of. Um, post-Foucault scholar who talks about exhibitionary complex and how the idea of structuring the, it's also actually situationist that the illusion of freedom is permitted. Mm -hmm. So structures that seem to be very propositional and emancipatory but are actually highly prescribed and I got, I was looking at uh, that big cloud thing and I was thinking how that was actually quite totalitarian Absolutely. although it looked very emancipatory, mm. and I suppose mm -hmm. that's what I'm trying to get at. That yeah. what you know, what is this thing between what things seem to mm. be and then actually what they do mm. okay. to us? So mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. it was something about. Well, I think Richie's comments at the beginning were really, really um, kind of fitting in that. In that, mm. the this moment is something that does. Uh, you you were suggesting that the form feels quite free, but of course, then we understand it equally as architecture and as art, mm -hmm. and it's it's recognizable and instantly kind of digestible. Mm -hmm. So those moments um, do become the, the, the moments in which you don't feel control, but of course you are, which is another great kind of uh, Noam Chomsky quote. Mm -hmm. you know, there's nothing more, you know, uh, nothing more free than kind of complete, or nothing more like uh, controlling than complete freedom. Mm -hmm. And I think the key point that you've made is, is the question about what it does as opposed to what it is, mm. you know? And I think you know that question can be can be you know posited out here in terms of trifolium. It yeah. can be posited in terms of the PS1 and all of those projects. And I think that's a much much richer way to have a conversation about public art and architecture mm. than to talk specifically about the objects themselves. Well, thank you very much. We'll be sending out uh, an invitation for the next one, which is on November 4th. And thank you for coming. Woo! Thank you.